This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Raphael Warnock beat Herschel Walker in the Georgia runoff last night, which was a defeat of Trumpism, inexperience, and uh, let's say something close to stupidity, not necessarily referring directly to Herschel Walker's intellect, but Herschel Walker's arguments and just the overall strategy of having Herschel Walker be the one to make the arguments, be the guy to try to fill a Senate seat, which wasn't a gimme, but also was being contested in a state where Republicans have won every statewide election this cycle tell Herschel Walker. So a defeat of things stupid is a thing to celebrate. However, MSNBC decided the answer was, let's celebrate a lot. Polls have been, take this wide shot. Will you see how (laughs) we are bursting? There is about to be some sort of break in protocol because we are bursting. Rachel Maddow there as co-anchor of the night, Joy Reid, was seen dancing coming back from a break. The dance party for the Democratic Party ran wild as reverie abounded. Yes, we have completely devolved all professional <laughs> it's gone. visage. I don't, think gone. I don't think we can get it back either. No, because no. of these two. I, we're the bad kids in class. I, I have to admit it. There we're is the a lot to say, I mean, some of which can be said on television, it turns out. <laughs> exactly. But we work on television. Oh, is that so we're going to try to get it together, people. Keep it together they could not, which is fine, I guess. If you make no pretense of being a news organization, Eh, sigh, sigh, I say sigh, because in this partisanized environment, what most viewers want is a dance party for their side, and MSNBC delivered one. CNN, trailing in the ratings to their left-leaning cable cousin, was more staid, as is its practice. And maybe that's why in November, CNN suffered its first ever loss to MSNBC on any midterm or presidential election night. MSNBC was in no mood to rein in the laughs after the results came in and were confirmed, nor did they rein in the dance moves or the hyperbole as when they went to Jason Johnson live at Warnock campaign headquarters. <laughs> Tell us about the room. Couldn't hear for a second there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing. So the music is popping. All I do is win. Everybody on Warnock team is extremely excited. I got to tell you guys, the feeling here isn't just elation. The people here actually feel like they saved the country. But the Senate was controlled by Democrats. Whoever won. No matter, a move is being busted. Don't be a party pooper. In sports, there's an expression some people use after a score. They say, act like you've been there before. You know, demonstrate a little decorum. Keep elation in check. But you know who says that? Bitter old guys who don't realize that bat flips and elaborate end zone routines are how the game is played. I mean, you want to give the fans what they want, right? And it's all about rooting for your team. On the show today, not this show, the show called Not Even Mad. My co-hosts there this week are Lara Bazelon and David French, two legal experts, as we discuss the Christian web designer who doesn't want to design for gay weddings, uh, Matt Taibbi's branded Twitter files, and the Oath Keeper's convictions. 
When you get a defense attorney and a true civil libertarian together, you get a segment like the one we got. It's a great show this week. On this show, this show right here, The Gist, in the spiel what the murder rate in Jamaica tells us about the murder rate in the U.S. But first, HBO grew from a small cable channel offering free movies and sports, transformed itself into one of the biggest players in television and streaming. Felix Gillette and John Coblin joined to discuss the rise of HBO in their new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, Felix and John, up next. When you came in, the air went out And every shadow filled up with doubt don't know who you think you are, but before the night is through, I want to do bad things with you. When I tell you the name of the new book is It's Not TV, you immediately know it's about HBO, which tells you two things. It's an excellent motto and it's really apt. That's one of the reasons why it's an excellent motto. Well, why is this thing that we get on TV and now I guess an app that's notoriously glitchy? Why do we say about it? Why do we think about it? It's not TV. It's all explained in the new book by Felix Gillette and John Koblen. It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. John, welcome to The Gist. Hi, Mike. It's great to see you. Great to see you. And Felix, welcome for the first time to The Gist. Yes. Thank you, Mike. So I, through reading your book and reflecting on it, think that there were two periods, mainly of HBO, but they blended into each other. It pretty much began as a utility and then became, we could say art form, but something of a curatorial culture influencing space. But do you look at it differently? Do you look at it as distinct periods in between? Felix, why don't you take that question first? To me, the first phase of HBO was the home box office phase. And the name came with, you know, you had to go, we were going to put on the air in your home, something that previously you would have to go out and buy a ticket for. So uh, Hollywood movies, uh, stand-up comedy performances, musical concerts, uh, boxing matches. And that, I think, was the first phase of HBO. It was all events brought to you in your home. I would say the second phase and the biggest transition in HBO's history was when they finally decided, okay, we're going to, you know, as great as a music concert is or stand-up comedy performance, people come to see it, they watch it once, and they leave. And if we want to bring people back week after week after week, we're finally going to have to get into episodic and serialized television and bring them back week after week with series. And to do that, we're going to have to figure out how can we do TV series differently than the broadcast networks. Although early on when they were in the boxing game, they aired such specials as Disco Beaver from Outer Space. What is the beaver's mission? Why has he been brought here? We shall see. I bet you're going to do a lot of interviews on this book tour. I don't know you'll ever talk to another interviewer who went and watched that show, but I did. Did you? Did you each watch Disco Beaver from Outer Space? I got to plead guilty that I did not actually watch it. Where did you find Disco Beaver from Outer Space? It's not on HBO Max. 
It's on YouTube. <laughs> nice. And you know who was it? It's a National Lampoon show. It's exactly a ripoff of Kentucky Fried Movie. It's sketches, but it's also breasts and fart jokes and some anti-gay humor. I mean, it's funny. Like, all those, like, there's so many lost series in that 70s, 80s, and 90s era. Like, Dream On, which was their situational comedy from that started in 1990. Are you telling me you would fuck a chicken for $4 million tax-free? Would anyone have to watch? Absolutely. Madison Square Garden, center court, halftime in a Nick game. Just you and the chicken. You will find little clips of it on YouTube, and that's it. There's nothing else. Same with First and Ten, the show starring O.J. Simpson and Delta Burke. What's this about teaching again? I am moving forward with my life, TD. I am not going to be dependent on anyone anymore. YouTube is the only resource, and it can be very spotty. The other way to watch that stuff uh, is by DVD. I actually went out when we started working on this book and bought a DVD player. And you can find a lot of that stuff on eBay. Dream On, First and Ten, Tales from the Crypt, um, some of those early HBO programming efforts, none of which are very good. None of which are good, but all of them have boobies. And that's that was a huge selling point, was it not? I mean, even First and Ten, a football show where the entire cast except Delta Burke was male, many, many breasts. And this was not a coincidence, I would imagine, and learn from the book. Yeah, it's definitely not a coincidence. And this is something I think that was just hiding in plain sight because all these early HBO efforts, I mean, I was watching Dream On when I was a kid, way too young of an age, but I was watching it. And, you know, as one critic noted at the time, it, this is the first show in America that has publicly declared it has a breast fetish. Um, but what we did not know, or what I did not know, is that HBO really was explicitly programmed to men. Like HBO's chairman in the 1980s said, we are going to program to men because he felt like the broadcast networks had programming that was tailored to women. And everything HBO was trying to do in those early days was differentiate itself from the broadcast networks. Research executives, they would hold meetings and they would say, a man controls the remote and the woman of the house will watch what he wants to watch. And then early efforts, there were some HBO executives who said, you know, we've got Ellen DeGeneres, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar. They're doing comedy specials for HBO. Can they lead a series? And the answer was always no, no, and no. And they actually had a term in the early days um, for uh, breasts, which was they wanted more of that in this in an episode. They would write on the script, looks great, but needs more cable edge, which was always the code word for female nudity, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. But it does seem that at the time, it was a good insight on a couple levels that TV was, well, you tell me, I mean... I guess history shows that they got something right, but then maybe it curdled into something toxic. But TV, as it was invited into the home for free, was aimed at appealing to the woman of the house who would control the household budget when it came to the things that were advertised on TV. Maybe not cars and razor blades, but all the household products. Whereas the decision to pay for cable, the thinking went, and I think there might be some logic in this, that was controlled more by the man who wasn't being served by the vast majority of programming on network television. So was that right? Or did they just stumble into this formula and get lucky? Well, yeah, that was definitely the thinking of Michael Fuchs, who was the head of programming at HBO at the time. And I think what they got right, and, and it's tied in with that, was that 
maybe not the gender dynamics specifically, but they were onto something that commercial sponsorship and the way advertising was tied in with television was really impacting the programming and the form. And if you took that away, like HBO did, you didn't have to worry about sponsors and you didn't have to worry about advertisers. You could do something completely different than anything else that was airing. And, you know, part of that was nudity. Part of that was language. But like the shows that just had curse words and breasts ended up not being very good. Like you had to do more than that. What could you do more that broadcast TV wasn't doing? And it did take them, I would say, decades to really figure out what is the thing we can do that will make really incredible programming. And that insight, I think, came about gradually, but really hit in the 1990s. And what it was is when they figured out, okay, these TV creators, people have been making shows and broadcast television, we can offer them a level of creative freedom that they've never experienced before in television. And we can say to them, okay, you're not, if you do your show for HBO, you're not going to get the same amount of money you get from broadcast. You're not going to get the same reach, but you're not going to have commercial sponsors looking over your shoulders. You're not going to have a standards department saying, stay away from you know, topics that upset people like AIDS or gun control or abortion. And you're not going to have network executives giving you note after note after note saying, make these characters more likable. They got to be more friendly. Like, you know, explain to people the subtext, have them in their conversation, explain what the plot is. Um, You are not going to do that. You can actually uh, make the TV shows that you always wanted to do and were always uh, prohibited. And when they finally got that piece of it, then you saw this explosion of amazing programming. That was what they communicated to the comedians for a decade or decades before they even commissioned The Sopranos and a couple of their groundbreaking shows. It just didn't occur to them or they couldn't execute it when it came to episodic dramas. They just didn't believe. Michael Fuchs, who was the chairman, the really influential chairman of HBO in the 1980s, just really didn't believe that HBO should be doing episodic television. Because when he looked at the broadcast networks, he was like, the one thing they do really well, TV shows. They've got a lot of them. They've got dramas. They've got comedies. They've got procedurals. We're not even going to enter that game. There was some disagreement in HBO's programming department over that because there were programmers at HBO being like, we should try this and put a vicious HBO spin on it. Why aren't we doing our version of a police show? Um, So there was a lot of tension. And even Larry Sanders' show, obviously groundbreaking in so many different ways that came in 1992 and kind of came in as an accident. It was a show where Michael Fuchs had a personal obsession with Gary Shandling, was burning that Showtime had taken It's the Gary Shandling Show and programmed it in the 1980s. So by the time Gary Shandling was a free agent, so to speak, he just was like, do whatever you want. So HBO's programming department had very little to do with the Larry Sanders Show, but that was sort of the first time when they were like, okay, maybe this does kind of work, but it still took another three years before they fully committed. Another initiative or uh, characteristic of broadcast TV is the likability of the characters. And that's not necessarily a flaw. Friends wouldn't be the juggernaut that it is if we didn't all like them. But it is an inefficiency that you couldn't really have unlikable characters as the main character, even though most really creative people prefer to write the villain rather than the bland hero. And I think that HBO, whether consciously or unconsciously, lit upon that. And that was a big 
characteristic of the golden age of television ushered in by HBO, but foisted on it by the fact that it wasn't allowed to exist beforehand on TV. And it was a risk. I mean, HBO, I mean, the story of The Sopranos, each broadcast network rejected David Chase's pitch, including CBS, where at one point Les Moonves, then running CBS, said, you know, I really like the uh, the mobster angle, but does he have to be on Prozac? That really makes him look weak. So one after the next. Fox initially said yes, then they said no. The other broadcast networks passed. So by the time it came to HBO, they were really intrigued. In fact, their executives were like, you should lean even more into this therapy angle. We like it. But by the time it came to give the official green light, there was pause there because they're like, this guy is, he does some nasty things. Should we actually do this? And it took a long time to say yes. They even went ahead and gave it to a focus group to watch. It tested terribly. Nobody liked it. And it, it took some time when it, and finally they're like, you know what? Let's just go with it. Let's see what happens. Let's trust this artist. We've met with him multiple times. We really like his vision. Let's do it. And then, you know, the rest is history. I remember The Sopranos' original marketing was more comedic. You had Tony's family behind him, and the poster was a riff on family. If one family doesn't kill him, mafia family, the other one will, his crazy kids. It looked like it could be a poster for Curb Your Enthusiasm with the put-upon main character in the middle. I mean, they wanted to... One of the reasons why they said yes to it is they're like, if you put away the mobster stuff, this is a guy who's... Uh, having trouble at home. He's got, you know, a waifu he's fighting with. The kids are teenagers and they're acting up. And then he's got problems at work too. So they're like, this is a relatable character. The only difference between him and everybody else they know is he's the Don of New Jersey. But yeah, I mean, and also it is strange that that is how they would market it. But of course, The Sopranos is like 40%, 35% of comedy. Yeah. And and then another huge portion, a critique of capitalism, which I don't think we realized until podcasts in the last couple of years pointed that out. Um, what your book does, it's an excellent corrective to the hagiography contained by anything official that ever comes out of The Sopranos. Jim Gandolfini, who apparently was a really wonderful guy, but it was also a huge problem to HBO and the rest of the cast uh, and the production crew, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that was... a. Uh, uh... You know, I mean, it's interesting. Also, we tell the story of when uh, David Chase was first considering uh, casting Gandolfini as as Tony Soprano. And he did have concerns about this beforehand. He had some intuition that maybe this guy was going to be difficult to work with because, you know, he kept flaking out at the, you know, not showing up for the auditions. And it was a process even just to get him to audition for the show. And, uh, you know, they decided to go with him anyways. But those issues certainly got magnified with time. So Sopranos runs until 2007. By the end, did HBO then understand what it was? And they did they have shows in the pipeline that would define it uh, through its heyday? Probably not in 2007, because that's right around when HBO was starting to hit a pretty heavy drought. But those early, I mean, you have this, you have Oz that debuts in 1997, which by the way, Oz is kind of sort of low key to like breakthrough show for HBO, because that was the first time when they really in earnest invested in a drama. And it was Tom Fontana, veteran of broadcast television, and just told him to go wild. Do you want to kill off a main character early on? Kill off a main character early on. And once Oz, once they started getting the scripts for Oz, 
That's when they made the deal for the Sopranos. Then after that, you've got Six Feet Under. After that, you've got The Wire. So they really went on this insane role very quickly. And of course, in between all that is Sex in the City and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like it was insane how good it was. But by that like sort of mid-aughts, 2000, the 2000s, by time The Sopranos went off the air, the follow-up act was John from Cincinnati, which was not exactly David Milch's uh, finest product. So that's when they started, you know, they, they came out of the gates winning 100 games every year, basically. And this is the first time when it was like, uh-oh, are we actually a playoff team right now? And also they had, uh, you know, in that time frame also, everyone else was watching with you know, rapt attention what HBO was doing and started copying it. So that was also the time where FX starts you know, doing the shield, you have um, AMC coming on saying we want to be this, you know, HBO basic cable. I mean, even NBC, there's this great moment where the, the head of NBC sends out this memo to all these production companies and people in the industry with a tape of, you know, an episode of The Sopranos and saying, look how violent this is. Look at it we can't do this. How do we, what, what can we do to compete with this? I mean, there was a lot of envy at the time and the broadcast networks couldn't really come close to doing anything similar, but you know, those other cable networks uh, started buying up shows and creating shows with, you know, villainous protagonists. Um, and so, yeah, HBO did not have a monopoly on that with pretty quickly within four or five years. How has the economics changed, though, from that era? Now that we're into streaming, now that box sets are no longer just free money for them, are they, uh, it's not exactly hard times, but what's the picture? I think the big change that happened, um, you have to trace back to about 2010, 2011. And the biggest change was Netflix coming onto the scene. Because Netflix, once they decided to go into original programming, they kind of did to HBO what HBO had done to everybody else, which is that Netflix kind of took over the HBO shrug. And they started being the ones that were like, we're going to outspend HBO on these projects. And the first time they did it was with House of Cards, where they swooped in and HBO wanted House of Cards. They were going to offer to buy it at a pilot level. And Netflix came in and said, David Fincher, we haven't really done this before, but how would you like a hundred million dollars to do two seasons? And you know, and and that's what, and they just blew them out of the water. And the reason it's, Netflix, it's a, could, it's a replay of Gary Shandling, right? HBO said we'll do a pilot, and then another network said you got the whole show. Yeah, totally. And the reason Netflix could do that in 2010 is because the broader investment uh, community, you know, at the time the paradigm in tech investing, if you think about it, was like whatever we'll we'll give you endless amounts of money and support as long as you're growing as long as you're just eating up new subscribers right. and market right. share we don't care if you're making a profit we don't Gro- care about growth profits. at any cost yeah right. and spend for and amazon price things yeah. yeah whatever you want like just price things at a ludicrous level that make no economic sense as long as it'll steal customers from the incumbent and you can crush them and i think that became a problem for hbo when suddenly they realized oh my goodness, like the thing we used to do to Showtime, now Netflix is kind of doing to us. Um, and, uh, you know, another great example of that is what happened with stand-up comedy, right? Because stand-up comedy was such a big part of the HBO DNA and such a part of their programming slate forever. Um, and then, you know, at some point Netflix comes along and they say, hey, Chris Rock, you know, you've been the face of HBO forever. 
how would you like $20 million to do one stand-up special for Netflix? And he says, great. So he goes over to Netflix and then they proceed to just do buy the entire stand-up comedy world. Um, again, at prices that made no sense. And HBO at that point was like, huh, okay, well, I guess you're going to take that entire genre away from us. Um, so I do think that's one thing that has been a big shift. And that's only exacerbated now because now you're in a world where Amazon is going into programming. And if they want to spend a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings uh, show, they can do that. Apple has, you know, vast amounts of money, you know, and they're get, they're kind of elbowing into the space. Um, so that's one big dynamic that's changed. Like HBO no longer can just outspend everybody. The name of the book is It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, co-authors Felix Gillette and John Koblen. Thanks so much. Mike, this has been great. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Jamaica is one of the most murderous, unsafe countries in this hemisphere. Murders spiked in Honduras and El Salvador, but Jamaica has more murders per capita in most years than they do. It's certainly the most dangerous country in the Caribbean and has been that way for a while. Recently, a state of emergency was declared and then redeclared after the Senate wouldn't confirm it. You can understand the concerns of civil libertarians and advocates of due process, but gangs and gunfire drive any government to extreme measures. They would say necessary measures, and who are we to disagree? But I want to talk about one aspect of Jamaica's murderousness that I haven't seen explored elsewhere. With a population of 2.8 million in 2021, Jamaica had a murder rate of 50 per 100,000. In terms of actual number of victims, here's Television Jamaica's reporter Janella Prusus with that count. Now, 2022 will go down in the history books as one of the bloodiest on record, as at November 13, 1,360 murders were committed. That's a 6.8% increase when compared to the same period last year. That number has exceeded 1,400 since the time of that report. So a murder rate of over 50 per 100,000. By comparison, the USA is currently at a murder rate of 6.5 per 100,000. According to the CDC, it's a rate of 7.5 per 100,000 in the year 2020, and it went up a little bit in 2021. By the way, five years ago as a country, we were at around 5.5 per 100,000. But a specific comparison I wanted to investigate was to compare Jamaica to specific U.S. cities. Baltimore and St. Louis have higher murder rates than Jamaica. They did in 2021. This year, those rates are trending lower than Jamaica, but still many times our national average. It's, of course, not fair to compare one country to one city. If we were to just compare New Orleans or St. Louis or to specifically Kingston, Jamaica, then we get maybe more of an apt comparison. But Justin Fox of Bloomberg, who is perhaps the best aggregator of accurate homicide statistics for a mass audience, put together this fact. Males 
aged 15 to 39, over the last five years, averaged a homicide rate of 292 per 100,000 in Baltimore, 382 in St. Louis. The average for non-black Americans during that period, 3.5 per 100,000. The numbers from those U.S. cities are shockingly high. But again, it's not exactly an apt comparison to take a city and compare it to a whole country, either ours or Jamaica. Let us compare person to person. And this is where alarming statistics abound. Because in the U.S., the murder rate among African-American men aged 15 to 44 is actually 103 per 100,000. The country of Jamaica, for their men, just their men, has a slightly lower murder rate. The point is that young, or at least under 44-year-old black men in the U.S., that man is slightly less likely to be murdered than a man of the same age in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, they are taking extraordinary measures to suspend laws, to increase police presence, to impose a set of states of emergency. It's not without controversy. The prime minister, Andrew Holness, knows there is opposition from the courts and from the opposition party in the Senate, which failed to give him the two-thirds majority needed for legislative approval. Still, he spoke to the public to lay out his rationale for this extreme executive action. Jamaica is not the only country in the region that is using uh, these exceptional powers uh, generally defined as a state of public emergency, to treat with the existential threats of gang violence and increasing murders. Police officials then spoke to offer statistics about how past states of emergency did bring down crime. I'm going to admit that I'm quite selfish when I monitored this coverage. I feel terribly for Jamaicans, but I of course did it from the perspective of an American. And just like I said, I feel terribly for Jamaicans, but I feel more terribly for the safety of my own countrymen, African-Americans who are being murdered at a higher rate than Jamaicans. When I survey the conversation around this issue here in America, it takes on a different sheen than how they're discussing it in Jamaica. Yes, over-policing is a concern in both places. And yes, there is racial tension in America and class tension in Jamaica. But at least that country has urgency and has put their finger on the real problem, which is so many people getting killed. In the U.S., I don't see the issue of crime and murder framed primarily as a crisis for the community that's actually feeling the crisis. For instance, as I've talked about, mass shootings get so much more attention. They can't not get attention. They're horrible. We should pay attention to them and think about solutions or think about the obvious solutions that our elected officials won't commit to. But in America, the ills of incarceration and the issue of police shootings are the dominant issues on the left. And an exaggerated sense of menace to white people is the dominant story, at least on Fox. Jamaica's situation shows that there's not an easy solution, but at least Jamaica understands its problem. And its problem is 1,400 people murdered. And in the United States, the problem is 14,000 black people murdered. If I can make one thing clear, it's that Jamaica's problem on a per capita basis is worse than the problem here. 
the average African-American male under 45 would increase his chances of avoiding murder if he emigrated to Jamaica or almost any other country in this hemisphere. What a horror. An insufficiently felt horror, making it all the more horrible. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, assistant producer Joel Patterson, senior producer Michelle Pasquez, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>